0: All right, good morning, everyone. I want to uh, make sure that we start this on time. Uh, Good morning. My name is Matthew Feeney. I'm the director of the Cato Institute's Project on Emerging Technologies. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to today's conference, Return of the Gatekeepers, Section 230 and the Future of Online Speech. I think it's fair to say that Section 230 is one of the most prominent features of the ongoing so-called tech clash. The law passed in 1996 provides a liability shield to interactive computer services for the majority of content posted by users and encourages content moderation. It has been the target of bipartisan attack in the last few months, in case you haven't noticed. To many on the political right, Section 230, which is sometimes portrayed as a big tech subsidy, allows for some of the best-known American firms, such as Google, Twitter, and Facebook, to engage in politically motivated content moderation. There are also questions about whether prominent social media sites should be considered common carriers or a public forum. Many on the political left have criticized Section 230 in the wake of atrocities, such as the Pittsburgh Tree of Life synagogue shooting and the massacre in Christchurch, New Zealand, with many social media companies being criticized for not doing enough to tackle white supremacist content. There are also concerns about harassment and revenge pornography. More recently, there have been bipartisan attempts to hold Section 230 hostage in legislative efforts to combat child uh, sex abuse material. And while concerns about such material are, of course, well-founded. Legislative proposals such as the EARNIT Act have highlighted the risks to privacy and security associated with proposals to make Section 230 liability contingent on breaking encryption. Worries about Section 230 offer us an opportunity to tackle questions such concerns raise. What obligations, if any, do interactive computer services have when it comes to respecting a variety of political opinions? Is there any evidence that Silicon Valley is, in fact, engaged in a campaign of anti-conservative content moderation? Are there ways to tackle the spread of harassing white supremacist and terrorist content without hampering the spread of valuable speech? What does the history of the internet, of internet content moderation in the U.S. and and abroad reveal about the best practices and misguided approaches? Fortunately, we are joined today by a range of policy professionals, academics, and industry representatives ready to tackle these and other important questions. And while taking part in today's conference, I hope that we can keep in mind that the internet is much more than big tech, and we should consider the impact reforms will have not only on household names such as Facebook, but other firms with less of a cultural foothold. We should also, of course, remember that while some of the companies we discussed today are American, they have a global reach. Before handing over uh, to my colleague, John Samples, who will be moderating the first panel, I'd like to make a quick note about the ongoing coronavirus uh, pandemic. Uh, Given the current situation, I hope that we can all uh, put a few social conventions to one side and not take it personally if people won't Uh, shake your hand or give you a hug or uh, stand too close to you. Uh, I should mention that for Q&A, we're not going to be handing around microphones. Uh, What we'll do is we'll have you stand up and project, uh, and the moderator of every uh, panel will repeat the question out loud. Uh, I would stress, uh, in case some of my moderators are too shy to note, that uh, the Q&A session is the question and answer session, not the statement monologue and answer session. Uh, Questions are sentences that end in question marks. If nothing else, please hold on to that for the duration of the day. Uh, Some of you may already know or have noticed, but the reception uh, has been canceled, so we'll be wrapping up around 3 o'clock today. As a reminder, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag CatoTechnology, and I hope you'll feel free to use it to ask questions throughout the day, whether in the Haik Auditorium or watching from home or work. Uh, Thank you again for coming. Uh, All that remains is for you to join me in welcoming John Samples and the first panel. Thank you.
1: Good morning, and welcome to our conference, to the series of hardy souls that live up to libertarian views about risk and uh, are making a rational assessment and decided what you see today is uh, going to be worth it, and I think it will be. Um, I thought I might say a few words. We originally had planned a sort of uh, brief discussion with the people, the authors, the co-authors of Section 230. Uh, they unfortunately can't make it, and So we're gonna go straight into really questions about private content moderation of social media. So what's the connection between these two things, the topic of the conference, Section 230, and the topics we'll be talking about immediately of uh, looking at really local issues of uh, private content moderation and also global standards. I think the connections are that Section 230, now 25 years old, really looks forward to a world in which mostly the control and watching over and regulation really of um, the internet, of social media is done by private entities. It both gives uh, liability protection to those entities, which has now become somewhat more controversial, but it's still very solid law there on the one hand. And on the other hand, it also says directly and in a way encourages a private content moderation by listing some of the kinds of things that could be removed, could be regulated by private entities. So the connection between Section 230 and our panel is we're going to be talking about how that moderation is done here, the the past and future of content moderation on the one hand, and then I think also looking at a really important issue which is the question of standards and whether those standards might be something beyond the nation state today. So with that, let's get started. Uh, our, we have three guests today. And as I said, I think our theme is going to be the local and the global. Our first, uh, I'll introduce everyone and then we'll go to the conversation. On the far, your far left and uh, first seat is Jessica Ashu, who is director of policy at Reddit since 2017 Prior to that, she was deputy director of the Middle East Strategy Task Force at the Atlantic Council, a job which produces some interesting Google searches. If you, if you do, I have a fan club. The uh, Jessica apparently is part of some vast conspiracy or the other, (laughs) in which of course we we welcome you. Um, Cato is sometimes part of vast conspiracies. Uh, she, uh, Jessica received both the phil and DPhil from Oxford University, where she attended as a Marshall Scholar. This distinguished background was topped off uh, by her stint as a Cato intern. Um, to my immediate right, your left, Evelyn Aswad. Evelyn is a Professor of Law and the Herman G. Kaiser Chair in International Law at the University of Oklahoma School of Law. She's also director of the Center for International Business and Human Rights, a very apt uh, position for our topic today. Prior to joining the College of Law, Professor Aswad served for about 14 years as an attorney in the Legal Bureau of the US Department of State, most recently as the head of the Office of Human Rights and Refugees. So she's back in DC for a a while. And to my left and on uh, the, the you're right if you're watching online is Fleming Rose, who is a Danish journalist, author, and senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. He previously served as the foreign affairs at the leading Danish newspaper, which I only try to pronounce at my own risk. So take take it for me, it was the leading paper. As cultural editor of the same newspaper, he was principally responsible for the September 2005 publication of the cartoons that initiated the Mohammed cartoons controversy early in the next year. And since then he has been an international advocate for free speech and we're very happy to have him here at Cato. So let's get started. Uh, Jessica, when we first met, we had lunch and you mentioned to me that Reddit has, and I was you know, talking to people at Facebook and reading and Facebook was moving heaven and earth to get 10,000 content moderators and then 20,000. And they, maybe in a couple of years, we'll have 40,000. And you told me at lunch, Reddit already has 100,000 content moderators. I just found that amazing, right? Uh, and they're all volunteers, or almost all of them are volunteers. Okay. Uh, um, so content moderation is really local to the platform and indeed it's pretty local. There, there are standards, but it's pretty local to the subreddits, right? Uh, that's an attractive concept. What I what I got for lunch is she's not only a Cato intern, she's running a Cato, you know, she's a policy at a Cato business. This is a decentralized, non-concentrated form of content moderation, right? Very attractive idea. Could you explain more about how it works at Reddit and how could this be used more broadly? Should it be used more broadly?
2: Great. Thanks so much, uh, John, for having me and thanks everybody for Raving plague and pestilence to be here with us this morning. Um, as you mentioned, it's a it's a pleasure for me to be back at the Cato Institute. I think the last time that I was on this stage was about 15 years ago, and we were debating the Heritage Foundation interns about gay marriage, and we won. The law was on our
1: side. Oh, we always do. With that, by <laughs> I the
2: way. I know. I, great New York Times piece about that um, the last last summer. Uh, but anyway, to the topic at hand, Reddit does things very differently. We're a different company from other platforms that you may be more familiar with and you may um, uh, use more. Um, The real defining feature of Reddit is that you can think of us as a federal system. Um, We have um, really a system of message boards that are organized around interest, whatever topic of interest um, fascinates you. And it can be from anything, from you know, cats, to knitting, to the NBA, to power washing carpets, r slash power washing porn. It's one of our uh, most most watched communities. Um, And the distinguishing feature about these subreddits is that they're all user created and user moderated. So if you create uh, the subreddit, you automatically become the first moderator. Mm -hmm. And all of these moderators, as John mentioned, are anonymous to us because we are a pseudonymous platform. We're not a model that's based on hoovering up all of your personal data. Um, We don't require your real name. We don't require your photograph. We don't require um, anything of that nature. All of our moderators are volunteer users who um, are just very dedicated to whatever topic um, they're engaging on Reddit in. And so to John's point, we have upwards of 100,000 of these volunteers who are governing their communities. And they're governing their communities according to rules that they actually set themselves. So I always use a very silly example to illustrate this, because it proves a point We have a community called r slash cat standing up. The only thing that is allowed in that community is photos of cats standing up on two legs, not four legs. If it's on four legs, it gets removed. If it's a dog, get out of here. Take that somewhere else. Um, Furthermore, the only thing that you're allowed to comment in that community is the word cat, period. If you put anything other than the word cat, period, It will be removed by the moderators. And we actually provide them with some automated tools to do so. Um, So this is a silly example, but you can see very clearly how it would be applied to other subreddits where they perhaps discuss more serious topics, topics around race, topics around addiction support, where you'd really want to have those controls. But it's very important that they're coming from the moderators themselves and not from Reddit. Sitting on top. Of those subreddit rules, as we call them, and you can think of those as kind of federal or municipal laws, if you're thinking in that federal analogy, um, is the Reddit content policy. And you can think of that as our constitution. And that we set um, from Reddit Inc. And like the US Constitution, it's high level and principles based. So it includes things like don't encourage or cheer on violence, um, don't harass people, don't ducks people, share their personal information, don't share what we call involuntary pornography, uh, things of that nature. And so all of our communities, like the US Constitution, are obligated to abide by that content policy. But for the very, very specific things that only make sense for their community, um, that is all left up to the subreddit moderators. And so the last point that I'll make about this system is that um, not only does it work very well, I think, compared to more centralized systems. But an important point that's lost is that it, it, it is derived, to a certain extent, from necessity. Reddit is actually a much smaller company than people realize, because our user base is huge. right? We're 430 million uh, monthly active users. But people don't realize we're only a company of 600 employees, 200 of which have joined in the last year. Um, So when I joined the company in 2017, we were actually fewer than 200 employees. So we're very much kind of in this startup scaling mode, even though our footprint on the internet is very large. And so we rely on our community as, as a matter of necessity. And I think it's something um, that the rest of the industry is probably going to have to take a look at as the industry continues to scale. Because when you're talking about, you know, Facebook numbers, for example, you can hire 20,000 content moderators if you have the resources of a company like that. You know, we don't. We're still on venture funding. <laughs> We're not profitable. Um, but even if you're you're hiring 20,000 content moderators against 2 billion users, I mean, that's a drop in the bucket. That's what you've lost already. Um, The only thing that scales with users is other users. And so that's why the Reddit philosophy is that you have to involve your users in your governance system.
1: So now that's the sort of local view of it. Let's go to the global, not in platforms, but in standards. Now, here's the issue. You think about Reddit, well, they have their standards and they're locally applied. That's one thing. A lot of people tend to think about content moderation in terms of national law. So frequently this discussion in the United States is going to be about First Amendment doctrine, those kinds of ideas, or indeed what this uh, conference is about, Section 230, and how it shapes uh, the discussion and social media. When you think about it, though, there's another alternative, which is there's free speech uh, law that's embedded in international human rights standards, right? And those uh, standards on traditional uh, sovereign governments have had limited effects, but they have a potential. Why do they have a potential? Well, think about Facebook, 200 million American users, 3 billion users in total, right? There's a lot of people using it outside the United States and outside of Europe. So it's a natural thing, I think, to turn to these international standards, provided that they have or they have a sense that they might be legitimate uh, in cross-border controls in a way that other laws aren't. Now, Evelyn, you've argued that international human rights law should be for the businesses. Not that it's obligatory in a legal sense, but the the businesses should take up these standards precisely because it would be a great way to protect speech. Could you tell us about that and why it's important for the future?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, So let me address first why um, I believe the international human rights standards are speech protective. So the standard uh, for international free speech protection comes from the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, Article 19. And essentially, it's a three-part test. And this is a one-strike-and-you're-out test. So the three-part test is, the first part is known as legality test, which means uh, speech laws uh, cannot be unduly vague. If they are vague, they will be uh, illegal under international human rights law. Second test is the legitimacy test, which means a speech restriction must be for a legitimate public interest rationale. So uh, keeping an incumbent in power, not a legitimate public interest reason to ban speech. Um, Public health, national security, uh, good faith, uh, invocation of those would be. Last test, third test, is the necessity test. And this covers, among other things, uh, that a speech restriction must be the least intrusive means of achieving that legitimate interest. So that requires governments, and I'm arguing would require companies to go through a three-part test. First, is there a way of achieving the legitimate uh, public interest goal without restricting or infringing on speech at all? Governments, and I argue platforms, need to go through that analysis. Can they be doing things short of speech bans? If they can, the speech ban is unnecessary, and thus the speech ban is illegal. Second, if they cannot do more, they don't have a toolkit to address the problem that works, They need to look at their continuum of options and choose the least restrictive means, least intrusive means, I should say. So for example, the UN human rights machinery has told governments um, for defamation cases, uh, criminal sanctions and excessive civil sanctions are unnecessary. They are not the least intrusive means they must fail for that reason. Then uh, governments, and I argue platforms, need to monitor if that infringement on speech is counterproductive or ineffective. If it is, it no longer meets the necessity test. Uh, This test applies even to international laws mandatory bans on hate speech. So it is a significant limit even on provisions of international law that require banning hate speech. The reason I feel this is very uh, protective of speech is uh, essentially for the same reasons that Nadine Strawson mentions in her book on, on hate speech. And why she has endorsed this standard for platforms as well. These two tests of vagueness and least intrusive means have been what has made the First Amendment such a standard uh, that's protective of speech. So many laws fail those two tests. And we see that through the UN human rights machineries and uh, condemnation of laws around the world, European hate crimes laws, uh, the NetsDG law, Italy's fake news provisions these have all been condemned under this three-part test and because particularly of those two tests, necessity uh, and vagueness. So um, for those reasons, I think uh, it is speech protective and would be useful for our platforms to look at that um, in developing their own rules. I think it's useful because um, you know, merely saying we're going to apply our nation's law to you is not always a very persuasive statement for people around the world, right? Um, the international standard, though, Is, it is persuasive. Um, And in fact, the UN has passed a global responsibility standard, which our own government has called on American companies to treat as a minimum standard in their operations. And that is to uh, align their business operations in a way that uh, seeks to avoid infringing on human rights. So we have called on them to think in this way. Um, And all the governments have in the world too. So for that reason, they would not be imposing anything on these other countries they would be merely doing what they have been asked to do at the UN.
1: So it is interesting, when a, a person that was originally uh, 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 intending to appear here, Kate Klonick, wrote an article, she, by the way, her institution didn't let her come, so they as a way, prohibited travel. She wrote an article, one of the first articles, about uh, this kind of content moderation. And at Facebook, around a decade or so ago, they were just looking at stuff and taking it down. And then suddenly they realized very uh, self-consciously that, wait a minute, we're in crossing borders here. We're applying American human rights standards in the sense of free speech standards. America's very protective worldwide and seen as very protective worldwide for free speech. Uh, and it became more problematic. And in a sense, that was the moment in which these questions be- inside the companies began to become problematic. And... We're still in that, trying to figure out a solution to that. Uh, Fleming, I know you've been reading, thinking about a book by David Kaye on the, the, this same topic. Uh, how do you view the international human rights standards as a free speech advocate? Uh, well, first, I want to commend
4: uh, Evelyn and uh, the Obama administration in 2011, the work you did in uh, the Human Rights uh, Council by returning and trying to narrow the scope of uh, get away with the concept of defamation of religion, in fact, uh, which I was a target <laughs> uh, some years ago, um, and they used the cartoon crisis uh, as occasion point to uh, impose new restrictions on, on on government when it comes to blasphemy. And I also commend you for trying to, and David uh, Kaye for trying to narrow the scope of uh, the concept of, of hate speech, but my you know we don't know how this will turn out in the end, but I'm I'm skeptical uh, because of a few things. Um, the 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 international human rights law foundation for uh, handling or tackling hate speech was flawed from its inception. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt and United States and the West lost the argument uh, back in the forties to the Soviet Union and and. Uh, a lot of on free countries when it comes to what kind of speech is protected and what kind of speech isn't. And it's, it's right that Article 19 um, provides the kind of provisions that you outlined, but Article 20.2, uh, which uh, calls for uh, banning speech that is not inciting uh, imminent harm, but imminent uh, 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 inciting hatred, um, and and is not focusing on the consequences of speech, but of the content, and it's basically what Nadine Strawson calls uh, non-emergency uh, restrictions. So, so my problem is that I don't think that international human rights law's conception of hate speech. Uh, um, uh, uh, lives up to the standards uh, that, 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 that follows the First Amendment uh, uh, doctrine uh, when it comes to viewpoint neutrality and it, when it comes to the emergency uh, uh, test. Although, I mean, uh, international human rights law is better than what Facebook is doing at the moment, but I don't think it fits uh, uh, the First Amendment doctrine. And if you just take uh, Brandenburg versus Ohio... Uh, which is the foundation, one of the foundational uh, um, decisions when it comes to, comes to protection of so-called hate speech in the U.S. I don't think uh, any other country who, has, um, who, has, uh, um, uh, who is within the U.N. system uh, would protect this kind of, uh, of, of speech. But 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 I don't know, you know, where this will go. But I'm 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 skeptical so far. Although I I, I admire the work you've done, and and uh, I also think David Kaye is doing a good job. But what will happen the day David Kaye is gone, and somebody else is uh, the UN rapporteur for uh, free speech? The United States has withdrawn from the Human Rights Council, so it's it's. I think international human rights law is very fragile, uh, while uh, the First Amendment uh, doctrine is very robust uh, and has, has, has shown its, uh, its, its value uh, on, its, on its merits and in, in reality.
1: So it, it seems to me there's some several issues here, but one is with Reddit, you know, I can see why it, Reddit would be legitimate, right? In the sense of if I go to Reddit, as I do, and go on some of these subreddits and something gets taken down, something I write gets taken down, um, you know, I can just leave, right? If I, I, and uh, if I know what the system is. Uh, the system seems to work fairly well. The moderators are kind of like everybody else. You can see it's that local uh, area. I think there's the real issue is the one you point to. Is it the case that if you start using data on users for an advertising play, as it were, uh, which is, can be very lucrative and successful, does it? Be, are you then led to the problem of having to uh, oversee speech because all sorts of speech will appear on your platform that drives people away from the platform, right? If You know, it's not unimaginable that Facebook without moderation looks like, or splits into many things, but one of them would be 8chan, right? So is it the fact that the profit imperative leads to the oversight and that the local problem, the locality and sort of decentralized close to us content moderation is bound up with the problem of not collecting data Even though, so the legitimacy and making it broader is harder. On the other hand, uh, with international human rights standards, you can see why other countries might not accept American standards, but on the other hand, the United States uh, could be a problem, the fragility of it, but also the legitimacy of human rights. I mean, I I know we've signed on to these things, but it does seem, you mentioned we've left uh, a, a UN body. It seems like we, come and go. With. Is that true? And then we come and go, and we leave, and we go back. Um, the U.S. Has, already,
4: has also made reservations when it comes to Article right. 22 right. and the Convention Against Racism.
1: Right. So there's that, and but the, the acceptance, I guess, I can see where the companies who are international would see this, and indeed, I expect that when Facebook announces its board and gets a board of oversight, when they get going, it's going to be a natural tendency to think about international standards, and there they are. So there's that, but I guess I'm asking the question, well, the crucial thing here is accepting it, accepting that these companies have a right to regulate because the standards themselves are the ones we want. So these seem to be, what do you think about this? About the, I'm sure a lot of people at Reddit have thought about the, the issue of profitability and where we go from here and how, but expanding the model seems to be Attractive to a libertarian or any kind of breaking down power, but what do you think about that uh, that issue?
2: Yeah, so on on the question of user data, we feel extremely strongly that Privacy is not in conflict with building a successful ads business. Um, and so We're not interested in changing that model and correct and collecting new user data. It's just not in the cards for us Um, that said I think it's important to I, I, I don't draw the same connection between questions of profitability and questions of content moderation because the number one thing that's driving our approach to content moderation is our values. We have platform values um, that we publish um, for all of our users. And at the core of that value, of that value system is to build something that, it, that our users love. And no one loves to be on a platform that's full of invective. And so we're keeping our our users in mind um, when we approach these difficult questions of content moderation. Um, To the question of internationalization and how we scale internationally, that's something that we're actively thinking about right now because Reddit is still primarily driven by US traffic. But like any business, we need to go where the users are. And most of the users are outside of the United States. So if we want to grow, we need to grow internationally. And that's starting to raise questions of how do you deal um, with different standards around the world. And this is something where our subreddit system and the user-based moderation system really, really shines at because we're not left having to scramble from the center to try and interpret how something is going to be viewed in uh, India or how something is going to be viewed in South Africa because the moderators of those communities come from those communities. And so they are able to... Um, automatically localize. We don't need to uh, do that from the center. And so in that sense, it's a really, really applicable model to um, any internationalization.
1: It it occurred to me, a lot of people, and one of the interesting things about Silicon Valley is a a kind of engineer's point of view, which is engineers are like economists. The first words out out of their mouth is always, what's the trade-off? What are we trading off? And for all I've said about you know, the locality and, the, the, and you just made the point about being close to people in other countries, uh, a lot of it, I, I've noticed also many people uh, for, in this area in uh, hold out the possibility that you would really develop a more broad, uh, for lack of another word, human consciousness, an international sense of being part of a larger uh, undertaking, right? And they they see... That, the, that possibility growing out of uh, not nation states, but out of the, these communication uh, technologies. But again, there's this question of legitimacy uh, for, I think maybe that's a particularly American problem because I think Europeans, I may be wrong, but well, maybe I am wrong because they seem to be throwing out uh, or rebelling against the European Commission. What do you think about these issues of legitimacy, Emma
3: Yeah, so um, just to take it back one step, I think, you know The reason American platforms have moved away from the First Amendment is beyond uh, trying to appeal to people around the world. They've had a lot of pressure domestically within the United States from the press, civil society, and American politicians to take down offensive material to clean up their platforms, right? So it, the pressure has come not just internationally but domestically. And I think that's kind of interesting in this space too. Because they are no longer in a First Amendment space, right? We have to admit, our, our companies are, are not implementing First um, Amendment-based principles, uh, at least the the largest ones um, that we tend to focus on. Um, So in terms of your question of legitimacy, where does that leave us? I think it leaves us trying to get them to at least uh, live up to international human rights standards, to not be making um, decisions based solely on the values of a particular CEO when it comes to speech, but to be putting themselves through this uh, very principled framework of making themselves think about, are their restrictions vague, and are they the least intrusive means on speech? That's what we are asking them um, to think about. And um, to address some of Fleming's wonderful points, um, you know, I agree, and I've raised in my um, article, The Future of Freedom of Expression Online, that um, this is fragile, uh, this human rights law regime that Eleanor Roosevelt put in place, and that Generations of American diplomats have fought at the UN to maintain strong protections for freedom of expression. It's fragile because most of the rest of the world is trying to work within that framework to erode it, right? because they they do not live up to these standards. Um, That doesn't mean there's a problem with the standard, it means there's an implementation problem. And as Fleming uh, points out, the US has walked away from the Human Rights Council two years ago, um, and we had walked away as well in uh, the Bush administration, and each time we're not there, there are serious attempts to erode freedom of expression uh, more and more. So, my argument is we have a very good standard. Free expression advocates, whether from the US government, from civil society, from American business interests, need to be there strengthening it. It will be lost, and once otherwise. And if it is lost, what is left? It won't be the First Amendment, and it won't be the standard Eleanor Roosevelt uh, created for us it'll be something much more restrictive of speech. Um, So I think that brings a lot of legitimacy, in my view, to garnering um, like-minded people on freedom of expression to back this and not just leave it to one or two American NGOs to care that the US has walked away from the Human Rights Council.
1: There's always, this occurred to me uh, just now, there's always this problem, is, is there not, that the companies are also committed to following the law in whatever country they're in. Yes. And of course, they don't have, if you don't have, they don't have <coughs> guns and so on. They're not real governments. Uh, but they, so it's very hard to resist that. You can get thrown out of the country or, you know, most of the law, many times the laws they carry out are, are fine, but many of them are also def, different on speech. So that's, I, I, I struggle to see how that's going to, beyond the publicity issue, how you're going to apply law in that way to those countries when you're committed
3: to that. So what we argue from a UN corporate responsibility point of view, applying the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, and I'm also a member of the um, Global Network Initiative, where companies like Facebook, Google, others, have pledged to try to hold foreign countries in their implementation of their speech restrictions to international human rights norms, specifically ICCPR article 19. They are not required to violate local law, but they should try to do what is possible to minimize human rights harms. So that might be requiring a uh, local government to um, give you uh, a request for user information by using their uh, appropriate domestic laws and getting a warrant, right? It could be by suing the local government under local law. Um, It could be narrowly interpreting um, requests, but they shouldn't be blindly just capitulating (coughs) and um, aiding and abetting foreign governments that violate international standards, they should hold them to the same standard. And that's what makes use of the standard so useful for content moderation is the companies would be using it for both sides of the coin. And I tell companies, let international human rights law be your sword and your shield. It is your shield in your company's corporate speech codes because when you are attacked by foreign governments, You can say, I am living up to international human rights standards on speech. For example, when the Europeans try to pressure our companies to adopt hate speech codes. And when uh, countries have laws that violate international standards, they apply that same body of law to tell them, here is why we are resisting. You are the one departing from international standards. So it has an elegance in terms of a symmetry, both for company speech codes and for resisting um, governmental attempts to restrict speech.
2: And John, can I jump in on that? One other really important thing um, that companies can do um, in situations where they need to push back on foreign governments is to be transparent um, about takedowns that are government-coerced when they're unavoidable. So Reddit just um, released two weeks ago our annual transparency report. And we report every government takedown that we do, what country it comes from. Um, We're we're very transparent about that. And it's useful in speaking with governments um, that they know that any request that they make of us is going to be made public. And so it's a useful check on the system to make them think twice. And in situations where the law makes it unavoidable to have a takedown, you have a public record of it, and that's up for discussion.
4: Well, um, just to follow up on your point that um, You know, different countries have different laws, and and they also have different norms about what you can say and what you cannot say, even though it might not be codified uh, into law. Uh, 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 Stake in Texas is perceived different than in India, where it can cause, uh, you know, um, uproar in the streets, uh, um, and people can get very angry and violent. So, so I think one question is whether this is feasible at all because we have different cultures and we have uh, 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 different norms and how to go about it. And at the same time, the technology uh, crosses borders. And in fact, the cartoon crisis was a very good example of how uh, norms and concepts in different parts of the world uh, clashes. Uh, should the law of Saudi Arabia apply in Denmark because people in Saudi Arabia can watch content that is published in uh, in, in, in in Denmark and uh, so I think there is a, a struggle a power struggle in fact going on about uh, about these norms and uh, I mean I, I I would still go for a first Amendment standard but I I acknowledge uh, um, uh, that this is complicated, a uh, probably uh, utopian uh, uh, vision. But as a matter of principle, I I I think um, the emergency principle and viewpoint neutrality in a globalized world uh, where we have to manage differences and uh, diversity of values and. And culture is, is really a, a golden standard that I would l- like to see uh, you know, put into the real world.
1: So there's a, an, another issue here that will come up more, I think, uh, thinking about the cartoons crisis. We were talking about this the other day. On the one hand, there's government rules about incitement and they're, they're going to be varied, but uh, in some cases really uh, suppressive of free speech. There's also the individual's point of view, right? Your point of view, if we look back in time, Uh, a future Fleming Rose is thinking about running uh, cartoons like that for reasons uh, internal to the country. They also have to think about the possibility that this goes out to a large number of people. And it could, in, in a sense, it becomes a kind of version of Heckler's veto. The fact that people are out there willing to act violently on your speech. Becomes, in fact, a kind of it can institute what's called a spiral of silence. Right? I mean, people can not say things because they're afraid of what happened. And I know, you know, I know what you went through uh, in 2005 and six. And it, it may well be that that's just part of the story in in the near future. This crossing of borders may be inherently part of that, and people may be have to be willing to do that. Now, speaking of uh, speech, let's go to our question session, uh, our Q&A. We've got about 10 or 12 minutes. Uh, Just the way we'll do it today because of the microphones is uh, just please, I'll recognize you. Stand up, and if you want to identify yourself, if you wish to remain anonymous, we hold out that possibility here at Cato. Uh, and then just l- let it hang out let- so I can hear, and then I'll repeat your question or paraphrase it for our, our audience. Gentleman in. Uh...
5: Thank you, John. Steve Doug, Dr. choice. But a couple of questions for Jessica. Uh, you mentioned that the student synonymous nature of Reddit is a feature. And I would ask you, how does that operate under a 230 regime like we have in this country with respect to the speaker not being identified? So 230 says the speaker is the party who's accountable. Not identifiable, how do you handle that? And do you find it Reddit that relying on others in the community to do the moderation? How does that
2: Yeah, great. Happy to speak to that. Um, So we have very limited amounts of user data. And uh, some of that that we do have includes the IP address that you use to create the account from. And then we hold um, the active IP address for 90 days. We wipe it every 90 days. So in the event that um, law enforcement needs uh, needs to um, have some user data from us. Um, first of all, we ask for valid legal process. We won't hand over anything without valid legal process. And you can go online. We have our law enforcement guidelines um, that we use to determine whether something is, is valid or not. If they give us valid legal process, such as a warrant, then um, we will share what we have um, in that sense. Um, but in terms of how Section 230 interacts with our moderator system, it Is the main thing that allows us to have a user led moderation system. Because without something like Section 230, the liability on us would simply be too great. And I think one of the real tragedies of the current conversations around um, amending Section 230 is that it's forcing, it's potentially forcing companies to all coalesce around a centralized model that only the largest players um, use, and only the largest players have the resources to be able to use. So it's potentially forcing a very negative homogenization of the industry in different approaches to content moderation. And then lastly, it's really, really important to recognize that Section 230 not only um, protects us as Reddit Inc. From using our, in using our best judgment when making content moderation decisions, it protects every one of our users. We don't want them to be liable for um, undertaking content moderation decisions, because they're the ones who are primarily undertaking these decisions. I mentioned our transparency report. If you go to our transparency report, um, we publish statistics on every content takedown on Reddit. More than 99.7% of all content takedowns on Reddit are done at the moderator level, not by Reddit, Inc. And so Section 230 is hugely important for preserving that system and for preserving diversity in content moderation in the industry.
1: As we go through the next few years, maybe some of these issues will be... Thrashed out and become more evident to people what might happen if you if you change Section 230. Uh, now, by the way, I really hate this section because it's always rude. I point at people and say, "You." <laughs> I mean, that's, sorry about that, but it's inherent in the system. The lady on the aisle. Yeah. I might have to find a new kind of diversity, so don't worry. <laughs> uh, I have a journalistic background, but I expect to um, quite several articles in South America. So I'm here just to share with
6: you some. Experience that we have in Brazil, uh, through Facebook and all the social media, we could uh, rebuild uh, a radical network uh, with a radical preacher, the name is Ibrahim If you look to Edit today, you can find people discussing, talking about Iran What I want to say is that from one point of view, we can say that social media are very important for people that work. At in enforcement, in intelligence, because we have an amazing, impressive amount of data, information, of ideas that are spreading at the uh, right moment. But at the same time, they are dangerous because they are putting very radical ideas, they are spreading radical ideas, not only in the United States, but in countries like Brazil, that they, they are facing with the problem. So actually, my insight is, um, Want to be global in terms of uh, profit business? I think that you must be. Uh,
1: So the, the remark in question goes to the, the issue of being sensitive or being knowledgeable about local condition, which really Brazil or otherwise. This does go to another question that I've always had and whether it uh, can be sustained, which is uh, in some ways, for example, European law did take the most obvious example was that uh, if you're in Germany, there are some things you can't see on Facebook that you can see in the United States because German law prohibits certain things from being expressed Uh, and Facebook and maybe others handle that by geo-blocking, right? If you're, depends on where you are is what you see. Now, it seems to me that that's not a sustainable kind of uh, policy uh, going on to your remark, right? As over time, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is sustainable. I really can't figure out why it isn't in some ways. It just seems like one set of standards, uh, at least at some level, for a company is going to be the tendency. Well, what did, does everyone think about the question uh, that posed? What do you do to deal with a Brazil? Or-
2: yeah, so when you speak about geoblocking, it's interesting because to get to the human rights, um, international human rights norms that are discussed, one of those is, um, ensuring that you're limiting the scope um, as much as you can. And geoblocking is actually a really interesting and useful tool for that because the content is not coming down globally. Mm -hmm. Um, We always want to avoid the content from coming down globally if we can. But again, one of the most important things that you can do when you're having to um, unavoidably enforce local laws um, is to be transparent about that. And so, for example, on Reddit, when something is geo-blocked, it doesn't just simply go away as if it was never there. The user in that country sees a screen saying this content was blocked because of this law in your country. Um, so we try and be very transparent about that.
4: But but you know uh, another problem here is that um, there was a case in Austria, which is quite close to Germany in terms of of, uh, of norms. And I think it was the leader of the Green Party, who sued somebody for defamation and, uh, and uh, the courts obliged Google to take it down globally.
1: Uh, yeah, there's an open... I mean, essentially, the technology has, and other changes, a revolt against internationalism, globalism, has it's sort of like the coronavirus in the sense we suddenly find ourselves in a new era, and we've got some techniques and tools for dealing with it, and in part, we don't right? And so we're sort of feeling ourselves the way forward. Section 230 is interesting because it comes before it comes and is enacted in an era before all this sudden surprise is known, right? And so whether this will be sustainable or not is, uh, and whether courts will, you know, extra national jurisdiction for courts, uh, there was a lot of worry about the French uh, right to be forgotten law for a while. And that seems to be a little less of an issue now. Uh, One last reminder here, remember you can, if you uh, didn't feel able to come out today or you're watching us online, you can tweet questions for this panel or any panel in the future, and we'll take them up and be able to ask them to the panelists, Uh, as I think Matthew, uh, yes, please.
5: watch people die, or Gamergate, where you have on the one hand, um, you know, extremism, the violent, uh, you know, imagery that's shown on people dying, which only came down after New Zealand, um, put pressure on Reddit. And then second, Gamergate, which um, resulted in coordinated harassment campaigns against journalists, which had a silencing sensorial impact. So I'm specifically interested in hearing from Evelyn, like how would international law Look at those forums when they're double-edged in terms of their impact on other human rights, such as the right to life or um, you know the right to free speech of the affected party. And then, second, for Jessica from Reddit, as you're thinking about globalizing, how could you think about um, you know taking the principles of Reddit and using those to push back in very restrictive places? And do you think that having physical infrastructure in a country? Um, prohibit, you know, not having that would prohibit you from being in that country and using your company as a way to
1: open up space for free speech in countries that have very limited space for that. So, the questions are first to Evelyn international human rights, how do they protect, I think, people who are participants in a, in a side, And then, how do Reddit's principles do do the same thing or push back also against governments? And victims. And victims, how yeah.
3: Yeah, okay, great uh, Great question, thank you. So um, you would have to go through the three-part test as usual, right? Make sure that uh, the company's uh, rules are not vague, that they have given a- appropriate notice to the users of their platform of what is allowed and what is not allowed. And then in terms of the least intrusive means test, where the UN machinery is at this point in the interpretations, and I acknowledge the fragility of that with the US not at the UN to you know uh, be participating in this, they are very c- close, I would say, to an emergency test because they, um, the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression in 2012, and the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, um, in a general recommendation in uh, I think 2013, have all said you need to look at the imminence of the harm before taking down speech. So one would have to look at the context of what is happening on those platforms to see, you know, really look at an, at a data-driven way. Is this offensive, potentially dangerous speech um, likely to lead to imminent harm to people? Um, if it is not, if it's harmful, but it's a kind of bad tendency test to use our First Amendment language, like the, 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 the course is a long one until uh, the harm would happen and it's speculative, probably not um, uh, okay under the existing uh, interpretations of international human rights law.
2: Um, Yeah, I want to take an opportunity to clarify on the the watch people die situation. That was not taken down because of pressure from the New Zealand government. It was taken down because of a conflict with Reddit's own content policy, which, as I said, um, forbids encouraging or cheering on violence. And part of the reason um, why the subreddit was left up for so long is because, from a free speech point of view, um, we were open to arguments that there's a reason to have graphic violence um, in terms of um, perhaps being newsworthy or other certain justifications that, would, that are required under our content policy. That said, um, we had removed content from that community and then the moderators disagreed and put it back up. And so one of the really interesting things about Reddit is the dynamic that we have between our moderators and the company. And as I said, moderators have to abide by our content policy. And so um, if moderators are unwilling or refusing to abide by our content policy, then that's a point when we have to take uh, community action. But really, closing a community is the last step that we will always take. We'll always try and mitigate. um, But in this situation, the moderators proved unwilling to follow our rules. And we, we obviously have to follow, uh, have to enforce our own rules. Um, on Gamergate, that's an interesting one because it speaks to the fact that we are constantly updating our policies and making sure that they're working against what we're seeing on the platform and behaviors that we would want to discourage on the platform. And so you might have noticed that um, just this past fall, we updated our policies regarding harassment. And we've been enforcing those. Um, Uh, more strictly in cooperation with our moderators so this is you know content policy is not static it's something that we're always adjusting to the realities of the situation to the realities of what we're seeing on the platform and then in terms of uh, your second question about um, some of the things that make it more difficult to push back on governments I mean yes um, if we have employees in a company that can be subject to arrest that's certainly something that we would have to consider. The safety of our employees um, is primary. Um, But barring um, other circumstances, the best thing that we can do um, when we're faced with government takedown orders or requests is, again, hold people to the best processes that we know. And so we will investigate the law and see if it's a valid law, um, we will investigate the request and see if it's a valid legal request. And if it's not, we will um, reply and say that we need valid legal process, um, whether that's through human rights law or through um, a country's own law.
1: So when I think about private platforms and speech, I always think about this room we're in right now. In this room right now, I work for Cato and I get to be the censor, right? So it's kind of a weird thing but um, not really, in the sense, if you have questions, for, we have questions later. You can save your question for another panel. Free speech would lead us on into the afternoon. The panel's been really quite good. But right now, we're going to stop, because we have to have more panels. And so we're going to have some speech regulation uh, in a certain sense. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Jessica, Evelyn, and Fleming.